This podcast is proudly supported by Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Dear Victoria, we were denied your beauty and your quirkiness and your open spaces and couldn't drive your great ocean road and we missed you. Remember to take the rubbish when you go because, you know, it's a long way up again if you forget. forget. I always call that the pyjama dash. For us, it's Monday morning and it's the pyjama dash at about 6.30 because you'll hear the truck come into the street. Oh, whoops. It was quite disconcerting to look at legs that were sort of black at the bottom. Why were they black? Well, they were black chickens, I guess. What? Inside? <laughs> the chickens, no, just at the end. The chickens sort of tasted the same. The meat wasn't black, but, yeah, because they were black chickens. I was on the eighth hole, I think it was, and it was a long putt. The sleet is in my eyes and the wind is howling. Got the putt in, did a happy dance, and Pete said, this is like Caddyshack. <laughs> I did. I felt like Chevy Chase, you know, against the elements. Don't shoot the messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome everybody to Don't Shoot the Messenger. This is episode 197. I'm Corey Perkin, and across the seas on my little computer screen is my very dear friend Caroline Wilson. Caro, I'm in the studio. This is great news, Corey. This is fantastic news, and um, it's great to see you and. Sad to report as Melbourne opens up, um, Amsterdam's closing down. But, you know, so there wouldn't, oh, no, people could still go to work here, but there are a lot of restrictions coming in as the COVID numbers rise, which is a little bit distressing, although slightly better news in the last couple of days. Well, we'll have a bit of a COVID conversation. And as usual, we have lots and lots to discuss. Caro has been to the movies again and, uh, and, We've both actually watched a really, or we've started, we've started to watch a really terrific Netflix, but we might save that one till ne- next week because it deserves serious unpacking. I've just read the new Hannah Kent novel, so I've got a bit of a report on that. Caro's going to, as I said, bring us up to date with what's happening with the coronavirus in the Northern Hemisphere and the Netherlands in particular. Caro's grumpy, can't wait to hear about what. I could be grumpy, Caro, because I spent the past five days on Victorian roads. I have a lot of road rage to report. Some of it oh, inside Corey. my car. Corey, you and Grumpy, what were you thinking going on a road trip? I just started to think, is that a good idea for someone with as many tra- road issues as you? I oh. think airports for you, Dal, from now on, or maybe trains. Trains, planes, automobiles. So, Kara, we've had some lovely, as always, some lovely emails and some lovely messages on our Instagram account. Maureen sent us a lovely email, um, which um, I I took on board completely. And I just want, not as an explain, explain, but I just wanted to clarify something. Maureen said, for a change, Corey, it would be interesting to hear some criticism of left side of politics. How about mentioning the corruption scandal with Adam Samurek, the cover-up of the Red Shirts and Dan's latest heavy-handed efforts? Well, Maureen, Caro and I had actually thought about, of course, discussing what was happening in Victorian state politics last week. We might even touch on it a bit this week. But um, we had such a full agenda last week, Caro, and I think you and I agreed that the story of the week was the climate change conference in Glasgow and the fallout for the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. 
So, and it continues to echo across the um, across the oceans, Corey. I mean, it's still a story here. It's not only Australia, but um, and some heavy-handed behaviour towards the end by China and India as well. Obviously, other third-world countries who wanted compensation. I mean, there's so many stories that are still coming out of that conference. But yeah, hopefully, it was not seen as a political bias. Well, issue, but simply um, the story of the week. The story of the week, exactly. So, and and then you know, I did mention Scott Morrison's rather rude, dismissive, dismissive nature toward journalists, and that was in defence of my journo friends. So, look, I really do appreciate it, Maureen. And please, everybody, always feel that you can um, send us brickbats as well as bouquets. We take them on board. Uh, another one um, for, on Instagram, actually, from abert06, Caro, for you. Um, Corey, can you please ask Caro if her neighbourhood in Amsterdam has the no wheelie bin system? There are apparently underground garbage bins, so you don't have to put the bins out. Just pop your bag into a thing on the corner. Absolutely true, Corrie. Spot on. Very good question. What happens is, and I talked about this, I think, back in May when I got back last time, I'm now staying in Reverenbert, which um, is a different area, but similar vibe. You... Rubbish is separated here into glass, paper and cardboard and normal rubbish. Not many people compost and when you do, you join a sort of bit of a secret compost society, Rose was explaining to me actually earlier today. but That, sound, one, that sounds a lot of no, fun, Caro, a compost society. Well, well you know, there's, there's a lot of apartment living here. It's just sort of different, you know, it's not as easy to have a compost bin in your back garden. But anyway, you take down the glass and at one corner we've got a glass bin and at another corner we've got the paper cardboard. Um, so recycle is not together paper, cardboard, glass, plastic, uh, you know, those um, Tupperware uh, yeah, tubs, etc. They're separate and all plastic just goes into the normal rubbish and the normal rubbish you carry down and put into the bin too and not once a week but Oh, lately it feels like every second bloody morning these massive trucks arrive and pull, the. you're right, the entire bin out of the ground, like the whole thing, these huge metal contraptions lift out of the ground and the rubbish is put into these various trucks. It's extraordinary, it's quite confusing, but the rule is, and we're living on the third floor of an apartment, steep steps and no lifts, of course, Remember to take the rubbish when you go because, you know, it's a long way up again if you forget. If you forget. And so is this... So is, it, is, it is a good system. It is a good system. And is this quite a noisy process when they come to take out these massive bins? My oath, it's noisy. I mean, it's really noisy. And our bedroom is onto the uh, pretty little square and there's a lovely little playground. A lot of playgrounds here have table tennis tables built in and chess boards and they're very imaginative the Dutch, certainly the Amsterdam Dutch. and um, But anyway, the the bins line one side of this gorgeous little playground, which last winter apparently they um, they froze over in some way and people ice, they poured water over it and froze it and people ice skated on this tiny little area. But no, they lift the bins out. It's very noisy. But there's not that panic, you know, like we do in Melbourne. Oh, it's Wednesday morning. Oh, my God, we've got to put the bins out because it doesn't matter. They they take it out every two or three days and people are often seen just walking downstairs with big rubbish bags. I always call that the pyjama dash. For us, it's Monday morning oh. and it's the pyjama dash at about 6.30 because you'll hear the truck come into the street. Oh, whoops. 
I knew I was getting old and boring when I started being really happy. The weeks that it was recycle week and bin week and it all went and you pulled the nice empty bins back into your garage. I thought, no, no, this is really, this is all getting to be too much. But anyway, no, I'm very okay with the bin system now and I like it. So where Rose lives, it's quite a long walk to the paper and the glass recycle area. So you sort of put that off a bit. But her actual bin is right on the canal, like right on this gorgeous canal. It's so bizarre, but there are bins everywhere. Everywhere, so I, you're never wanting for a bin. I get you. I guess you get to know the character of a city by the way it disposes and handles its rubbish. I just, Cory, wish you could see the way they lift these bins out of the ground. It's quite extraordinary. Great technology and extremely loud. Well, there's a little project for you on behalf of the podcast, Caro. You can film it for us, and Miss Jane will pop it on our Instagram that account. Is not- <laughs> Corrie, that is not my Dutch fact for the week. I've got okay. an absolute cracker this week and it's quite Good. controversial. All right, Dutch fact coming up. Now, just uh, one more email because of, I'm aware of the time. It, this is from Shauna from Sydney via email and this is actually to Miss Jane. So it has nothing to do with you and I, Caro, but I'm going to actually feed into it. Jane, you've got a fan out there. Oh, you've got <laughs> many fans. Miss Jane, I think you live near Ballarat, heading there for a long weekend from Sydney Uh, She then gives us the dates that she's in Sydney and hoping for a few inside tips on things to do and see, especially food, art or garden related. Love the pod. Keep it coming, please. Shauna from Sydney. Well, can I just, before we go to Jane, can I just mention, and Jane doesn't know, I told you something, Jane, about this one, didn't I? Yes, you did. Um, The 1816 Bakehouse. Caro, this is an old, uh, this is a big bakehouse in one of those wonderful old Victorian I don't know what it was originally, buildings in Ballarat in Armstrong Street. And they have seriously the best croissant and bread loaves I have ever had in my life. So we often go there with the children and they're very child-friendly, Sean. I'm not sure whether you've got little ones with you, but that would be my tip. And also the Lamley Nursery, which I talked about a couple of weeks ago just out of Ballarat. You will need a car to get there. Shauna, but the Lamley Nursery is well worth the effort. Jane, over to you. Oh, we could do a whole episode on this. But, Corrie, I think you go to Ballarat more than I do. I'm only half an hour out, but I just seem to be uh, stuck in my little zone where I am now. Um, Have to mention the Ballarat International Photo Biennale, Shauna, that is on now. It's been extended, so anyone else planning a trip to Melbourne or the Ballarat region will be able to catch it for the next uh, few months. All the info we'll put in the show notes, but ballaratphoto.org. And as part of that, they're doing these Ballarat photo walks. So you can sign up for these and local professional photographers will take you around the streetscapes and architectural highlights of such a historic city in Ballarat, camera in hand and give you lots of tips, but also a great way to explore the history and the architecture of the gold rush. So I reckon that sounds like a real interesting way to maybe do a little tour of Ballarat. Uh, Dining wise, you will have to book for this, but Mr. Jones is the third restaurant of um, Michelin starred uh, chef Damien Jones, who is a wonderful guy. I had the pleasure of doing a local produce dinner with him in his former restaurant, the Lydiard Wine Bar. He also had catfish, but this is his new place with his wife, Danielle. It's called Mr. Jones, modern Asian, always really passionate about local ingredients. Hard to get into, I think. Um, beautiful architecturally designed restaurant. 
I would highly recommend that as a great place to go uh, for your wonderful meal. Just top-notch. He is just an incredible chef. And, of course, the Ballarat Botanic Gardens. Oh, yes, with the Prime Minister's, Carol. Do you remember your grade five... Um, I do. Excursion I do. to Ballarat. <laughs> the Julie Gillard statue is is quite. I wouldn't say sympathetic. Sharp. But it's, yeah, but it. Yeah, it, but it's. It. I think they've. I think they've captured her really well. And when you stand there and you see that she's the only woman in an avenue of men, you think it's time. Sorry, Cara. What was you? Gonna, what were you going to say? Well, is there any mention of the old Sovereign Hill, one of Australia's greatest tourist attractions? Don't laugh. I love Sovereign Hill. That's a no-brainer. I love taking my kids there. What are you laughing at, Jane? I just think that's a no-brainer. Everyone knows so- Sovereign Hill. So, yes, absolutely. Oh, well, <laughs> well, there is there's sure just... <laughs> If yeah, she's look, got there children is. or if she's young at heart. I mean, it's a, that bowling alley, there's so many great things to do, hours of fun for the kids. And they have, imp- every time you go there, there's so many improvements. And the sound and light show of the Eureka Stockade, I'm very impressed by Sovereign Hill. Yeah, look, I agree. It has come on since that grade five excursion of mine. But I do, <laughs> I do remember us walking around Sovereign Hill as 10-year-olds wondering why women were, you know, dressed in their full Victorian 1860s regalia, smoking a cigarette oh, with, a, with a can of Coke. With... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do remember everyone doing those photos and the men in the waistcoats, etc., and the pipes. But no, no, I love Sovereign Hill. And I agree, the Botanic Gardens are absolutely beautiful. Corrie, you've been to Mr. Jones. That's meant to be an absolute... It is. It's wonderful Did as you Jane. Go... You had a family. Yeah, we did. We did. Yeah, we did. And um, my son-in-law Jake is a friend of the owners. And yeah, it is. It's a terrific place. And the other thing too, which is really lovely, is they have you know the provincial living stores. I reckon the one in Ballarat is the best in the country. And you go upstairs, the little girls love this. They love having afternoon tea with uh, me up there. Um, They have great scones, and so you shop around quite nervously because the children are among the glassware, but then you go upstairs and you have your cup of tea. So I love that as well. There's so much in Ballarat to see and do. So, um, yes, and in fact, that kind of feeds nicely into my crush a little bit later on. But, Cara, let's talk about Amsterdam. I Just before you go on, I just want to say, Cara, there's been a lot of correspondence and also Potty's saying to me how much they are enjoying your travel diary. And I think partly that's because none of us can really do what you're doing at the moment. Um, and you are, you and Brendan are trying to lead a, a normal life um, and being there to support Rose and Oscar and Sunday. But uh, just we love it. Keep it coming. And um, just uh, we're just all so interested. We all want to go to Amsterdam now, I think, whenever we can travel. So tell us what you've been up to. Oh, well, I would highly recommend it. The probably... Tr- um the local touristy sort of highlight this week was a massive antique market, which is billed as the biggest antique market in Europe. I think antique is probably being a little bit generous. It's probably more like a flea market. It's outside the ring. Um, it involved a ferry ride. Of course, the young, it's, it's held once a month, I should say, the first Saturday and Sunday of every month at this massive sort of warehouse at the end of a ferry ride and, um, Oh, big warehouses everywhere, lots of graffiti, funky kids' parks. It's it's a really interesting part of town. Um, 
they wouldn't let me get an Uber. I said, we need to get an Uber. We don't want bikes. What if we buy stuff? No, you're riding your bike. Well, of course, rode there in pitch dark, met them at the ferry. They were a few minutes late, but that was fine. It was a bit rainy. I was getting a bit antsy about my coffee by this point because, as we've discussed, the coffee shops don't open super early here. Um, oh, Corrie, it was an absolute, it was such a treat. It was absolutely brilliant. We found some wonderful bargains. Rose and Oscar of um are moving into a new apartment. So we were really looking for stuff for them, sort of mid-century retro vibe. I found some fabulous Arabia wear, pieces I hadn't seen for years, complete bargains, a um, bit of Delft, you know, that beautiful blue and white china. I'm sorry, how did and, you get it all back on your bike? Well, Oscar's got a friend with a van and he rang him up and he said, um, I don't suppose you feel like coming out and checking out this, this bike. Yeah, my, mo- my mother-in-law's about to spend up. Oh, well, well, no, they, excuse me, they had, they brought a massive rug, they brought four, we saw these four amazing rattan sort of very um, 60s, 70s chairs with the sort of bent wood, but modern, sort of that S shape. And Oscar goes, yeah, they look good, but they just break. I know what happens. This has, this has happened before, Rose. We had some. And Rose goes, oh, well, those ones were broken anyway. Oscar's like, I won't have them in the house. And the man, I said to the man, how much are they? And he goes, 50 euros. I said, oh, 50 euros each. That's not too bad. He goes, no, no, 50 euros for the lot. Oscar goes, well, I do love a bargain. All right. So we bought this four chairs. Then we found a matching metal one on more rugs, light fittings, lamps, globes, Sunny's nursery. No, it was a it was a great great day out. So that was the big highlight. Um, the low light, and also well, the other highlight was um, getting to the movies. As I've done with a frenzy now, I've discovered this great local cinema, and not the one outside the ring that Rose dragged us to mistakenly a few weeks ago, where we saw the French Dispatch. But we knew that a big announcement was coming about restrictions. So I've sort of been frenzied, you know, frenzied. I'm booking places for lunch because. Restaurants are closing at 8 o'clock at night. So everything shuts at 8 now. So which really, after what we've been through in Victoria, it's not such a big deal. And particularly because it's getting dark now by 5.30 and soon it'll be dark by 4.30, probably even 4 o'clock by the time we get to sort of mid-December. So um, going to dinner at 6 is no big deal at all. We've become very used to it, of course, because not that anybody could move around too much during lockdown here. As you remember, there was a curfew. But we're all saying... Maybe it's our age group, our cohort, but we're all saying love the 6.30 dinner and everybody out the door by nine. So you know how I love a dunch, which people are still trying to get their heads around, that you can actually arrive at someone's house at two o'clock and you can have lunch at 3.34 and then everyone's out the door by eight. Can I just tell everyone, it's a winning move. But I'm finding now that I have some dunch uh, interested parties because they want to explore this further. They're loving the 6.30 gathering with the meal on the table at seven. Well, Corey, I've been booking lunch, you know, several days every week because it's perfect. You have a late breakfast and then you have go to dinner at four and um, by the time you've had a drink and, you know, you've had some dinner and you leave probably at 6.37, that's your meals done. And it's dark, as I said, it's dark by 5.30, so you sort of get there in the light, you leave in the dark. A lot of um, Sundays had a few sleepovers with us this week, which has been so beautiful and so Whoever and Rose say is round or whatever, and two of us will go and have a drink at a brown bar. Yes, the odd beer, but usually wine, even though there's only, as I told you, one wine on the list and about 38 beers. Um, 
and the other one stays home and cooks. So it's sort of a really nice little system. At the moment, I mean, I'm not taking COVID lightly and there are a lot of cases. We've all got our passports. You know, we're, we're feeling pretty safe. I, w- I want to ask you about that, Cara, because there was an interesting, uh, our crush, uh, Norman Swan, Dr. Norman Swan, was on his Corona cast, which is still going and I love it. It's a terrific podcast. And just gives you an update each day what's happening. But a couple of days ago, he and Tegan Taylor, his colleague, were discussing uh, the surge in Europe, of course, that's happening as as the winter months close in. And can we expect that here in Australia next year? Uh, Norman Norman had an interesting take on this because it's it's all about uh, boosters, partic- particularly if you've had AstraZeneca, but that in fact time is on our side because we are. Uh, well, it feels like winter today, let's face it, but we are, strictly speaking, you know, seven or eight months away from the cold weather and he believes in that time there will be more medical advances. So Australia will be in a pretty good position. But um, what's happening over there? Well, as I said, there's the numbers are in the thousands upon thousands. Germany, we were hoping to do a little mini break in Cologne next week, our last sort of mini break for the trip, because we want to help the young move and then get ready for Christmas, which is very exciting. Um, but Germany, I think now there's a rule about isolating for 10 days, I think, when you get back. So, you know, that's absolutely not interested in that at all. So that won't be happening. They're... They've got some terrible, terrible numbers, although the lockdowns haven't happened. It's extraordinary here. It's very um, and highly anticipated, like it has been in Victoria and New South Wales, you know, what the Prime Minister is going to announce, or the Premier, in this case the Prime Minister, always leaks out on the morning of. So by the morning of the press conference was last Friday night, so everybody knew by mid-morning Friday about, well, the announcement was going to be that restaurants were going to shut at 7 and um, the London Times sort of took that verbatim. So when they announced 8pm by Friday night, everyone was sort of, you know, woo-hooing and saying this is fantastic. And everyone's at the pub and we were all out having it. We went to a late dinner. We babysat so the kids could go out early with their friends. And then um, we met for a late dinner. When I say late, sort of, you know, 8 o'clock or 8. No, I think we I think we met at 8.30. Anyway, um, but, um, yeah, so the... People, the leaks are so accurate normally that um, the Times reported it verbatim. Turned out it was wrong. A bit of inf- misinformation going around, which I'll talk about later in Grumpy. But um, look, no one's really panicking. You still run into people who hear your Australian accent or other Australians who've lived here for a long time who just go, oh, we just can't believe, you know, can't believe what you've been through in Australia. And I get a bit defensive. I'm like, well, when I got here in April, you guys have been locked down for eight months. What are you talking about? But I don't know. No one seems too stressed about it. I mean, the the advantage of living in a place where we do have friend, lots of friends of friends and the kids have got lovely friends who are our friends too, but the fact you can only have four people in a house together, it's not such a big deal here where I don't really have that many friends um, as it would be in Melbourne. So Where I have I many, have many four, friends. <laughs> where I'm so popular and, I mean, 400 would be a better number. No, no, I'm only joking. But yeah, no, you're so not. Four here you are quite, not joking. Four here is quite good. Four around the dinner table is as much as I'd want. And also some of the apartments are rather small, so four is probably all you can pop in there. That's it, that's it. So, yeah, we've got into a nice little routine. Brendan actually cooked dinner tonight. We've decided he's going to do dinner one night a week. We'll still um, do the odd takeaway and eat out because it's still a novelty. And um, I'm really getting into the, you know, Dutch way of life. It's just sort of a – it's an opportunity we'll probably never have again. Um, It's come about in difficult circumstances. But to come and live in a city in Europe for three months – 
heading into winter, coming in autumn, heading into winter, is has been absolutely a gift. Well, it's, it's a, it is a bit of a pity if the borders of other countries are, are increasingly going to be off limits to you. I mean, I was thinking that you might go up to Denmark or or pop into um, Stockholm or even Sandham and see if there's a murder that you can... Um, well, we actually, were you wouldn't want to go to, to Sandham at this time of year. No, Stockholm, Stockholm's one for next year. We've decided we're only going to go to places now that you can get on train and it's sort of easy. So next week we're going to Maastricht, which is... Um, known as the gallbladder of the Netherlands because it joins on to um, Luxembourg, France and Belgium, I think, too, but certainly France and Luxembourg. And it's a very French, beautiful city, um, famous for its Christmas markets, famous old town. So I'll report from Maastricht oh, next I, week. And I, and I wonder if Oscar's friend with the van can actually meet you at the market because having travelled with you overseas and gone to various shopping outlets, I know, oh, how, you I know what you're so capable impressed. of. I know what you're capable you of. You would be so impressed at how abstemious I've been here. It's pretty, and, you know, having your husband by your side sort of 24-7 is a bit of a handbrake too, in a good way, in a good way. We do a lot of things together, although he's got the swimming pool going and I've got the yoga class going, so that's our little I would I would time. like to think when we were shopping in the Cornish Cream Shop in Falmouth, I was channelling Brendan as you picked up the 10th tea towel, organising the lamp fittings, how were they going to get back did to not, Did Australia, not regret <laughs> one purchase. I, I should be apologising to Beechworth and Charlton and Yakandanda and all those other beautiful towns around um, Victoria, but I still think that about Port Ferry. Just getting back to my um, biggest and most unique flea market in Europe, Corrie, it's called the IJ Helen, H-A-L-L-E-N, and Miss Jane will have that on the show notes. I highly recommend it. First weekend of every month. Now, Corrie, more excitingly, you finally got to Port Ferry. I Tell us about did. It. I did. So we had our five days. And as I said last week, Jane Bunn had predicted terrible weather. Well, Jane Bunn was correct, as usual. Spot on, Jane. Yep, it was 13, 14, oh, yeah. 12 and 12. We played golf. You can tell Brendan this. We played golf um, and... Uh, on on those occasions that it it was every it was every season in on the one hole on the one hole but but I was oh, no. on the um I was on the eighth hole I think it was and it was a long putt to get it in and at this stage it must have been about <clears throat> I guess about 7 degrees with the chill wind chill factor of you know god knows what and the sleet is in my eyes and the wind is howling and I, I thought, oh, come on, there's no way I can sink this putt. And I only had one shot and I'd be out of the hole. Got the putt in, did a happy dance. And Pete said, this is like Caddyshack. <laughs> oh, I did. No. I felt like Chevy Chase, you know, <laughs> against the elements. It was hilarious. I couldn't stop laughing with joy. It was so funny. But I tell you what, Carol, our friend, friend of the pod and friend in real life, Jock Sarong, the wonderful Victorian writer who lives at Port Ferry, uh, I caught up with him a couple of times for a drink and then we had coffee a couple of days later. So much fun, great company, he and his wife, Lily. You caught up with Jock without me. I can't believe it. Do you know how, many, so do you know how many women folk have said that? I mean, Jane here is actually blushing, wishing that she was there. My friend Jen Hutton. And you, and you, and you met his wife as well. I am so yeah, jealous. Jen Hutton was just, oh, Jock. Like we're all, we're all kind of like, oh, Jock. Anyway, he knows he has a fan club, but he's so humble. He would never 
Like, anyway, and we're all 60 and got a crush on Jock. That's really weird. But anyway, he, I just no, want to. I want to meet his wife. I've got a crush on his wife without <laughs> even meeting her. Well, she how's is. The, she's wonderful. And the have, next thing. The next instalment going finished of the, um, of, of um, oh. Mr. Um, uh, Fig. Fig. Yes, yep. uh, that that book oh, is finished dear. and is working on another one. And he had he did me the honour and the pleasure of discussing it a bit with me over coffee the other morning, which was great. But this is this is the direct text from Jock, and we did everything on this. Okay, everything, and. If anybody is going to, or except Blarney Books because it was closed on Monday, but if anybody is going to Port Ferry, Miss Jane, I'm going to make her put this, or she'll do it with pleasure, I'm sure, on the show notes. So here you go. Hi, Corrie, some tips. Best morning coffee, Port Ferry Coffee Roasters in Bank Street. Best brekkie, Bank & Co. in Bank Street. Best cake or mid-morning coffee, Rebecca's in Sackville Street. Now, Rebecca's isn't open for sitting down, but we did have the most amazing takeaway oat slice. Best lunch, Farmer's Wife in Sackville or a BLT at the Oak and Anchor in Bank Street. Best books, Blarney in James Street. Best Arvo drinking, the Merry Jig Bar. Well, that's where we met Jock and Lily on Friday night. That is such a little, oh, such a little find. Best pizza, Coffin Sally. Best Thai, Lemongrass. We had Thai takeaway on Sunday night. That was yum. Best late night drinking. Oh, Ministry of Omnibulous Studies in Bank Street. We didn't get there because we were in bed by, a bit like you and Brendan, we were in bed by nine. Oh, wow. So it was that's, great. That's, so they had Jock's Port Ferry GLT. Yeah. And was Port Ferry, despite the bad weather, did it live up to your um, yes. long wait? Yes, it did. <clears throat> Carol, any getaway after lockdown is is a true is a true gift and I felt very lucky and we had different outings and different different bits of fun with friends. We had friends stay with us on Thursday night, so we went to the Conlon's Wine Bar, not on Jock's list, on mine from last time. Love that place. And um, and really delicious wine too and beautiful food, beautiful food and just lovely long walks along the beach. No matter what the weather, so long as you've got the good coat, you know, and so I had the Cornish walking jacket that I seem to have lived in all winter down at the beach. And now, of course, I took it to Port Ferry. I did, as I said last week, I did have um, a completely different suitcase packed for the holiday. (laughs) So as I said, all the summer clothing and the hats and the bathers and everything came out and all the winter woolies went back in. Thank God. Did the bathers get a run? Absolutely not. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? (laughs) You know what the Swedes say? That reminds me, Rose has quoted to me several times in the last few weeks, there's no such thing as bad weather, just Bad clothes. That's so true. I'm a true believer in that, but I won't go near the water when it's that cold. But um, but I it did. It's a beautiful place to be in bad weather, though, isn't it? It is. There's so many places to cozy up in. I love. I agree. It's one of it. I think it's probably the most beautiful town in Victoria. Well, as as my husband Pete said when we were driving back, that was a true rest and relaxation. And part of it for us uh, is because there's you don't use a car. We just walked everywhere, and that's yep. what we love, and that's yep. why we love Byron Bay too. We just we we're, go to somewhere where you can walk. But Carol, it did just remind me of the importance of the weekend, and I, I was thinking more about um, normal traditional workers. As everyone knows, I've given up the bookshop, and so my work life in the last couple of months has been a bit different and a bit odd. But for people who are perhaps office workers who have been at home for eighteen months and maybe are still going to be working from home for another few months, it is so easy when all the laptop and all the stuff is set up on the kitchen bench on a Saturday to say, oh, I'm just going to read an, a quick email. And then two hours later, you're still working because we lost weekends. We lost the beat of our week 
in lockdown, didn't we? You know, we just sometimes you didn't even remember what day it was, and weekends no, just became. We didn't. You're they, right. They just morphed into everything else. So I think reclaim your weekend and try and get away from the computer and uh, and jump in the car and just go somewhere for the day or the night. It's just great therapy. And what was also great therapy was discovering a couple of the local wine establishments. And that's a lovely segue to introduce Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store, our wonderful sponsor of our podcast, because we're going to be talking about local wine shops. Here comes the cocktail cabinet. And it's that time of the week, Cara. We welcome back to our little podcast, Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store, our sponsors. Miles, it's great to have you on board. Oh, gosh, I can't wait for a day when all three of us are back in the studio again with Jane. I know. Oh, imagine. Imagine and having a drink. Won't that be fun? It'd be fantastic. I'm really looking forward to it. It's uh, Yeah, I mean, it's great we have all this technology, but uh, nothing beats in person. Well, certainly 2022 will be, um, we'll be here uh, live and loud and clear. But, uh, Miles, we were having a chat, the three of us, via the email over the past couple of days about the importance of arriving in a town or a city and locating a really good wine shop. Now, of course, if you come to Melbourne, where else would you go but Prince Wine Store in South Melbourne? Or if you go to Sydney, you'd go straight to the Sydney HQ of Prince Wine Store. But it was um, it came to mind when uh, I've just had this mini break in Port Ferry, Miles, and there is a restaurant and wine shop there called Conlon's Wine. I think it's called Conlon's Wine Store, not not wine bar. And um, beautiful food, really beautiful food, but also a terrific small-ish selection of great wines. And um, and we just found that for a couple of days to be a terrific source of inspiration, chatting to, you know, what, what, what kind of wines do you think we should buy, so on and so forth. And, Cara, what about you in Amsterdam? Have you found a good local wine shop? I've found several, <laughs> several, Corrie. I don't mean drinking <laughs> and, at them. Um, and you won't, you won't be surprised um, to hear that. Look, um. In my local area, Gaul and Gaul is sort of like the vintage sellers or the Dan Murphys of Amsterdam, and they're, they're pretty good, you know, little wine shop chains. And there's another one, Weinhuis, as in W-I-J-N-H-U-I-S, and there's one in my local street, um, Zoud, Z-U-I-D, it's in the um, south, obviously, and another one called For Your Taste Only, which is a beautiful wine shop. But they're my three locals, and I've been to all three. Oh. But... Um, the best one, Miles, and this is um, runs off Overtum, um, which is um, one of the big main arteries that runs alongside Vondel Park, is um, Levain et Levain. Get it? You know, bread and wine. A lot of bakeries here sell wine. Like it's, it's a two-way, you know, more, you know, cool places. And Levain et Levain has some of the most beautiful natural wine. No, the, we don't always like natural wine. But um, I go in there and I ask them. They also sell the most incredible local honey too. But you go in and ask them, tell them what you want, tell them the price. And people are so nice. I mean, it, it's a really nice way to meet people, to go into a good wine shop. And there are plenty here, plenty. So, so Miles, tell us about the importance of the wine shop and what people – what, what sort of experience people can have and, and how we should actually not be shy or intimidated by asking questions. What, you know, what, why is it that go, going into a wine shop, once you have your courage, it's such a special environment to be in? Yeah, look, I, I, I think the big one is relationships, you know, building relationships with the people that work there. And, you know, over time, 
you know, those those people who work there getting to know you and knowing your tastes and what you might like. And I think the real advantage of that is sort of expanding your drinking palate. You know, once you once people, you know, once a staff member starts to sort of understand what you like and particularly what you don't like, I always think that's a really important thing to talk about. You know, what you like and what you don't like, they can start sort of pushing you in different directions saying, oh, you like a Sauvignon Blanc, maybe you'll like an Albarino. You know, you'll like a Chardonnay, maybe you'll like a Marsan Roussan. You know, you like a Pinot, maybe you'll like a Gamay. So I think, you know, establishing that relationship with, with you know, some people in the store, it doesn't have to just be one person, and them getting to sort of know what you what you like, what you don't like, and sort of being able to just sort of push you in a, a in a maybe different directions uh, and expand your sort of tasting. I think that's probably one of the, one of the main things. And I think you know people in those shops or the way those shops are designed, you know, they're really designed for that sort of one on one, have a chat, go through. They've got the time to you know sell you stuff. And I think a lot of those smaller places have a different selection to particularly the big main stores, say like Dan Murphy's or Vintage Sellers you know, who often have deals with certain suppliers and things like that. And what you get is in these smaller places, you know, you get a lot of smaller producers, small batch wines, you know, one-off little things. And I think you get a lot more, uh, a lot more sort of selection for maybe things that you don't normally see in some of the larger shops. I, I think that's the two sort of big sort of takeaways that I would find. I always uh, feel that a, a good wine shop is, is like a good bookshop. There's a similar kind of community that grows around events, and we're going to talk about an event that Prince had um, in a minute, and uh, and that relates to our special offer this week. But it's it's also that trust too. You know, somebody comes in and asks for you know they like crime fiction, but they don't like this novelist or that novelist, but they do like Stephen King and they love Splatter and or Nordic crime mm. or whatever it is. And then next time they come in, you know, you recommend and, and the, you give them a great book and then they're glued onto you, aren't they? Because they, they just, they feel comfortable. So then once that, once that relationship's there, you can encourage them to go beyond. Yeah, yeah, I, was yeah actually, a- I was actually about to um, buy a Chablis from one of these beautiful, in fact, there was a wine tasting going on and it's a good comparison with books, Corrie, because when you're overseas, to walk into a wine shop where they're having a wine tasting or a bookshop where they're having a book opening, you just want to be there and want to make friends and sort of mingle. Sometimes it works. It doesn't always work, I must say. Um, but I, I was going to buy this Chablis and I told the guy I love Chablis and I took, it was it was a little bit more than I wanted to spend and he said, no, no, this is a much better wine. And it was actually a German wine that was like a Chablis. In fact, fellow grandparent Johan had told me about this wine, but he, this guy actually sold it to me because he said it's better. It was actually better value and a better wine, but it wasn't called the name that I wanted. But so I'll always go back to him. Absolutely always. And there's something very attractive about wine shops too. And Prince is obviously a great example of that. You walk in and it just looks so beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a couple of things there. I think that trusting is t- absolutely 100% really important. And I think you find, particularly with the store I've worked at and the stores I've worked at, we're very we're very open and honest and we'll tell you if we think something's maybe overpriced or if you're looking for a certain thing that you're out, got in your head, that maybe you can get something a bit better. And I think that's really important for building trust as well, definitely. Um and yeah, look, I mean, we're lucky in our store too. We we had uh, I can't remember the name of the designer, but it's a pretty timeless sort of looking store. So just, your store is beautiful, I, and I spend way too much time in there. Yeah, well, I will now. Lockdown's over. We designed it that way a little bit. I think you know, it's it's nice. To, it's so nice to go in there. I think if you're into wine, or like you say, if you're into books, like you love poking around in those types of stores. Like, well, I, so I, this this is this is a really sort of left field um, analogy, but. 
when I walk into Prince Wine Store, I feel this, I get the same feeling as when I walk into Mecca Cosmetica. Oh yeah. I mean, Miles, if you love Mecca Cosmetica, good on you. But for me, for me and for Caro, but I get to the lipstick areas in Mecca Cosmetica, and I start to have a physical response of needing. And I stand in front of your Pinot section, Pinot Noir, and I get the same kind of feeling. Mm, how many can I have? What can I afford? Yeah, yeah. I know. I understand. I have to. I have to get some special stuff from Mecca for my wife on occasion. And I, I, I totally get it. You walk into that store, you're just like, oh, so much cool stuff. I know. I call it the lolly shop for big girls. But so tell, oh. so tell us about one of the events you had recently, the champagne event. Yeah. So, I mean, that's another great thing. You often find these smaller stores will run lots of little tastings and things like that. And it is a great opportunity to meet, I guess, other like-minded people and, and meet the staff. And, and they're fun for the staff too. Like we really enjoy putting on these events. Um, and we've put on, finally, last year we couldn't do it. But this year we've got to do it again. So it's the annual champagne event. I think we showed about 60 champagnes this year, but we tear apart the whole store. It's fantastic. It's so much. We'll have to, we'll have to get you along to the next one. Well, um, I think also we have, and we have talked about this, we talked about this pre-lockdown, uh, the most recent lockdown, about having uh, a podcast event at Prince Wine yes. Store. And I think a lot of our potty, potties would be keen to do that. We would love that too. The special offer this week relates to champagne. Yeah, so look, if, if you go online to the website, um, there's, a, there's a section called um, Special Offers, funnily enough, um, and it's the annual Champagne Melbourne 2021. Go have a look. All these champagnes, 15% off or more. We match all the prices to the market. So it's basically the cheapest champagne in the country at the moment and has everything, Bollinger, Ayala, Agripar, um, Pierre Peters, Vilmart, um, smaller producers like Le Corte Gobelon. It's got really like the full sort of gambit of big houses, small growers and, and sort of new and fantastic little houses. So it's a, it's a really great offer. It's definitely worth jumping on the website and taking a look. Um, sounds and, sounds but, great. But, so most um, smaller wine shops, smaller, i.e. not Vintage Sellers or Dan Murphy's are one of the bigger ones, but um, have have good websites and there'll often be an events section there, everyone. There were lots of wine tastings, uh, wine shops were putting on during lockdown via Zoom, which was an interesting concept. Yeah. Um, lots of boxes being delivered around the suburbs and people at the same time opening up their wine and, and trying it and listening <laughs> to it, which I thought was just such a, a novel and creative idea. But, Miles, we can jump on to... Uh, princewinestore.com.au and always see what you guys are up to. And, um, yeah. yeah, everyone, don't forget your little wine store. And as Caro said, it's always a lovely way to connect with uh, a local town or a local city you may not be familiar with. Just um, jump into yeah. your local wine shop. Miles, thank you. No problem at all. Thank you. And, everyone, don't forget to jump on to princewinestore.com.au for everything that we've talked about today and the special champagne offer. And, uh, yeah, support your local wine shop. After that most interesting conversation about where we buy our wine and embarrassingly that it's one of the first things we look at when we go to a new town. I reckon we look for the best cafe as well. Um, you are going to tell us who you've got a crush on this week. Well, Caro, this is in the theme of this podcast, I guess, and also going back to Janie talking about Ballarat before. My crush is Victoria and Victorians. 
we have gone through so much these several lockdowns, particularly Melbournians, but all Victorians, because sometimes a country town, that part of regional Victoria was open and then it was closed and people couldn't get over the border even though they lived in Mildura. It was all so confusing, nobody knew. And dear Victoria, we were denied your beauty and your quirkiness and your open spaces and your ski fields and your beaches and your incredible Airbnbs and your host farms. Um, we couldn't drive you Great Ocean Road uh, and we missed you. And that's what I realised, Cara, driving around Western Victoria on this particular occasion. Um, oh, gosh, Mother Nature has been kind in many ways. They've had rain, Cara. The farmers are singing in that area. Everything is green and beautiful. And the country is up for it. The country is up for visitors. That's what I found so amazing. Not that they normally aren't hospitable. Of course they are. But I just found... The welcoming of city visitors was so sincere. Everybody was up for a chat in the pub. Um, everybody was um, happy to give you the quickest advice on a route back to Melbourne. Um, you know, people were engaging in coffee shops talking about, you know, their particular roast that they use and what do you have in Melbourne. I just think we have a, an utterly beautiful state, which is so varied and so wonderful. And so I just wanted to say I love you, Victoria, and I'm so glad that we're back together again. That's my crush. Spoken and authorised by C. Perkin <laughs> on behalf of... No, that was absolutely... Do you think I'm going to get New South Welsh... Am I going to get New, New South Welsh... You know, your your brother Will or somebody saying, hey, what about us? Look, all of Australia is great, but that's... I just think Victoria's had a particularly tough time, guys, so there you go. You're absolutely right. I couldn't agree with you more and a very good crush, Corrie. Uh, now, you're going to kick us off for BSF this week as well because you have read a new book by, Can by Hannah Kent. I'm interested to hear about this. I am, Carol, and I'm going to have to tread lightly and read a little bit of this because I was thinking about it last night. It's very hard not to give the kind of main moment away, so I'm going to be very careful and on a leash. Kevin from Geelong, I am not being loose on this one, okay? I'm being quite scripted. <laughs> this is called Devotion by Hannah Kent. It's the third novel by the author of Burial Rights and the Good People, this talented Victorian writer, former Adelaidean. She returns with a delicate and beautiful novel that reminds us that true love does not discriminate or follow guidelines. It can't be controlled or quelled or hushed and it can live forever. The Guardian, a couple of weeks ago, Caro, had the most interesting, like it got you at the first, uh, at the headline, and the headline was Devotion by Hannah Kent, Historic Queer Love Story Overwhelmed by Solemn Ecstasy. While devotion skims over its knottier racial issues, Kent's fans will find a lot to savour in her lush and sensory third novel. So it's set in the 1830s, Caro. It starts in Germany, in a small Lutheran community, they have been ostracised by, uh, increasingly ostracised by the church and the and the um, governments there. Um, so they are somewhat outcasts, I guess you could say. The narrator of this is the teenager Hannah or Hannah H A N E. So I think it's Han. Actually, it's probably how I pronounce it. And her friend Thea. This is the story about the two of them and their friendship. As part of this tight-knit community, the Lutheran families realise they, they must flee Germany to avoid persecution and the community is sponsored to move the entire community, the entire settlement, to a new settlement in South Australia. 
This is modelled on Harndorf Caro, which is actually where Hannah Kent's own family first settled, and I'm sure Jane, being a former Adelaidean, will know about this too. Now, Hannah is a beautiful character. She's a nature child, and she has an extraordinary affinity with nature. She hears voices in the winds. She hears the trees singing, and she sees God God and goodness in everything in the natural world, and, and she is quite a spiritual and religious girl. This novel has, it's written in kind of two parts, Caro, but I think there are four parts of this novel. Hannah's life before she meets Thea, the friend, then the meeting with Thea, and their fa- and that's all part of the family's decisions to be part of a religious diaspora to Australia and to the new colony. And then the third part, I would say, was the journey via ship, which of course is one of those six months usual ship voyages fraught with illness. Um, massive seas, seasickness, death. Um, we've read them all before, but I just love a good sea voyage. And then the final part is the community's arrival in Australia and its interaction, albeit be briefly, with the Indigenous tribes and communities and then how they established their old religious order in this new building. Um, I'm not going to say any more because I'm terrified of giving too much away, but I loved this book. I read it in a couple of days in Port Ferry. Um, Hannah Kent fans will love it, and it's terrific for book clubs. It's uh, terrific as a gift, actually, to give to a special friend, and I think with this one, Hannah Kent will attract the attention of the literary judges in 2022. And interestingly, Caro, because her previous two novels have not been set in Australia, she's never, therefore, um, qualified for the Miles Franklin. So maybe this oh. one, maybe this one could be it. Wow. Well, I look forward to reading that. It sounds, you obviously loved it. I loved it, yeah. I think it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, um, but um, but the story flows beautifully. And it is, you know, from, from an historical fiction perspective, it's so interesting to read about this community. It's all based on fact. And in fact, um, you know, as, as we know with Hannah Kent, she, she's done extraordinary research into this area but the way she's captured the Australian bush the sounds through the eyes of newcomers to the territory you know which is like a bit like Elizabeth MacArthur's this a room made of leaves which the book clubs that I run have just done um, they've all done that book and it's just seeing Australia through new eyes is so always so interesting so, yeah so I loved it so that's devotion by Hannah Kent now on to screen. Uh, you've bumped off the Netflix one that you and I are going to talk about in the next couple of weeks because I couldn't wait to hear what you're going to say about this. This film is also, Corrie, not going to be everyone's cup of tea. It's called Spencer, and we've discussed it um, a few weeks ago, I think, um, about the fact that um, we were all highly anticipating Christian Stewart's turn as Lady Diana Spencer, who became Diana Princess of Wales. Boy, this is a dark film, Corrie. It is really dark. Christian Stewart is brilliant, quite, I think he is absolutely fantastic in it, as is Sally Hawkins, you know, from The Shape of Water, that gorgeous English actor who plays Diana's dresser. Um, the film is basically like the last days of Shane It's um, Diana's last Christmas at Sand- Sandringham. It is spelled, it, the, the whole film is filmed over three days, no spoiler alert. We all know that they ended up getting divorced and we know what happened to Diana. But all we see is the Christmas Eve, Christmas Day and Boxing Day. You know that Prince Charles isn't going to be portrayed particularly sympathetically. Who plays him? 
<coughs> Corey, you are you are going to die. You are going to die. George Warleggan is Prince Charles. No, <laughs> George George Warleggan. Oh, that scoundrel! I could. Not, I could uh, Jack Farthing is the name of the. Actor. He's too short. He's, He's too short, Caro, for Prince Charles. Well, Prince Charles isn't exactly tall, if you remember. Sandringham is, of course, you know, backs on to Diana's former family home, which has all been boarded up. There is, it is very heavy-handed on the symbolism of this film. Pheasants are beautiful birds, but not particularly bright, sort of bred for captivity. Diana has dreams. Um, the new um, sort of manservant butler, he thinks has left this in her room to spook her. He is brilliantly played by Rafe Spall. Um the um, Anne Boleyn, the story of Anne Boleyn, and Anne Boleyn haunts her throughout the film and her story. The symbolism continues with her relationship with her clothes, with Sally Hawkins, comments about the Queen and currency and faces being on coins. Um, very, The royal family are portrayed as shadowy, not evil figures, but figures from another world who have no interest in the future, as Diana says, only the past and the present. The only really happy scenes are the scenes with her sons, who also know that something's wrong. She's virtually on the verge of a nervous breakdown over the entire three days for, for pretty much the whole film. Everyone thinks she's going mad. She thinks she's going mad. The eating disorder is portrayed with brutal, not only brutal symbolism, but quite brutal reality. Um, lots of pretty horrific scenes in bathrooms. Um, and as I said, the royals, Princess Anne, um, Fergie gets a, you, you see them all just as background figures. You barely see Prince Philip, Prince Charles, not that much. Um, Camilla turns up, if you can believe it, on the Christmas Day church service and this horrible sort of subplot about pearls Prince Charles gives Diana for Christmas and what happens to these pearls. I mean... As I say, the symbolism is incredibly heavy-handed, almost too heavy-handed in some bits, but I found it fascinating. There is no pretense that this actually happened. It's described at the beginning of the film as a fable from a true tragedy, and it is a tragedy, and it's after, you know, listening to recent interviews with um, Harry and Meghan and their life, you sort of go, well, you know, there, there is a bit of truth in all of this. It's directed by... Pablo Lorraine, who um, did the Jackie Kennedy movie as well, he's a brilliant Chilean director. Who plays, before you, on recommendations, who plays the Queen? Oh, the Queen is played by um, a Scottish actress. Um, obviously also very, even more symbolic is the name of the film, you know, the fact that it's called Spencer, which is very much, you know, about Diana and her own identity. The Queen is played by Stella Gonet, G-O-N-E-T, um, you'll remember her. Do you remember the House of Elliot? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. She was one of the main gals in the House of Elliot, and um, Pablo Lorraine, as I said, has done. Look, he's done a brilliant job, but it is. It, it's just so dark. Um, I said, by the way, that the manservant, the butler, was played by Ray Spall. It's obviously the relative Timothy Spall, who is is pretty creepy. You can't work out whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. One of the good guys works in the kitchen bit of upstairs, downstairs, and as I said, it is not a flattering portrayal of the royal family. So I can recommend it, but not everyone will enjoy it. It is very dark. It it sounds great. <laughs> but can you believe it, George Warleggan, of all the people to cast as Prince Charles, I, I was just shocked, 
shocked. <laughs> I mean, is there a more red? And, and he's, if anything, oh, with more, a Paul horrible in this. <laughs> yeah, obviously, pe- people have seen Paul Duck. They know what I'm talking about. Um, very quickly, I'll move on to food because I won't wax as lyrical about this. But for the first time, Corrie, inspired by my trip to Budapest, I made goulash last night. Oh, I used to make goulash when I first started cooking. Well, no. I had a Women's Weekly. No, you didn't. You made beef stroganoff. No, I did make beef stroganoff, but I also made goulash. I made, because there was a Women's Weekly. Actually, you know what? It was a Geraldine Dillon recipe. Um, I've still got really? it somewhere. Yeah, because I, I, that was when I was first introduced to paprika. I remember it so well. Very old-fashioned recipe. Um, we ate it at, a, at the Central Market in Budapest. Uh, we, we had some, and they give you on your table there was a big sort of table mat with a goulash recipe on it so I thought look I bought all this paprika now you know even though I had some of it confiscated at the airport as I told you very annoyed about that the liquid paprika but um this is one of the world's easiest recipes I won't say it got a a massive round of applause by the fellow (laughs) diner at the table um so why are we doing it (laughs) well because it's really simple it's very comforting you can either use beef or veal all it involves, and I'll, I'll send a photo of the recipe I got at the Budapest market, the central market, to Miss Jane, but I, I had actually veal, so I used veal instead of beef. All you need is paprika and a lot of it, caraway seeds, onions, potatoes. Here's an old-fashioned recipe, Corrie. I mean, it's, I think your beef stroganoff recipe is probably better. I put in carrots, but red, red capsicum can go in as well. Bit of parsley, best served on buttered noodles, which I did. And I look, I thought it was delicious. And chicken stock and, and one recipe I found said throw in some white wine to deglaze, so that as well. But um, absolutely delicious, really easy. But when you think that we used to think of it as this exotic, sort of very spicy food, it's not spicy at all. I mean, sweet paprika is really nice. But um, and the goulash is certainly very red. Um, the Budapest guide we had said real, real goulash is actually soup and not a casserole. But I made the casserole absolutely delicious and it sounds like Melbourne's having a bit of goulash weather at the moment. So that's my recipe of the week. Well, goulash came to Melbourne, I think, in the early 70s, maybe late 60s, and it probably was seen as being quite hot and spicy because those days we were just eating ham steaks with pineapple on them. (laughs) Yeah, and and also in those days an avocado was something you maybe bought once, once a month you know, and our, mu- and our mothers and our mothers halved them and put vinaigrette dressing, usually bought, not made, in the middle of it and put it on a platter, a plate, and that was entree. Whoa! And called it an and called it an avocado pear. It was a, remember it was an avocado pear, or in and, the case of Peg Perkin, um, made it into a pie with a bit of avocado in it. Avocado chiffon pie, please. Don't forget the chiffon. Um, But paprika paprika was obviously seen as spicy. Well, you're a bit of a rave for it, but I'm interested more in the the feedback from the other person, the other diner in the room. It's problematic finding a good butcher here. We've found some wonderful butchers, but as I said, the French butcher we recommended sold us chickens that were black and they were beautiful. But But, you know, it was quite disconcerting to look at legs that were sort of black at the bottom. Why were they black? Well, you know, well, they were black chickens, I guess. What? Inside? The chickens, well, no, just at the ends. The chickens sort of tasted the same. The meat wasn't black, but, yeah, because they were black chickens. And that's a a way a lot of um, chickens are sold in France, I guess. 
Jane and I are pissing ourselves here in the studio. It's kind of like the girl gang against the one girl, the silly girl in the room. We are laughing hysterically at the idea of black chicken legs. Um, yeah, go on. Sorry, what did Brendan think of the goulash? He felt that some of the veal was a bit tough. And you are meant to slow cook it in the recipe. I found, I sort of cross-referenced an online recipe. You're meant to put it in the oven at sort of 130 for about three hours, and I probably only did it for two hours. Anyway... It was beautiful, I thought, and um, you can all try it at home and tell me what you think. Okay, so that is BSF and thanking our friends Prince Wine Store for, of course, being our great supporters of this program. And, Caro, what are you grumpy about? Well, sorry, Corrie, I'm back just briefly on the COVID rant and just some misreporting that um, came to my attention because people were quite horrified and alerted me to it. Um I think on the 4 o'clock news on Channel 7 the other night, the epidemi- quite, quite well-known epidemiologist, uh, Mary Louise McClaws, reported that the Netherlands were, had recorded 82,000 cases of COVID in one particular day. And I think um, the correlating figure in Germany was over 100,000. Now, the numbers are bad here, but that figure is completely wrong. I don't know where he got it from and people make mistakes. I don't know whether it was a weekly total or what, but in fact, the highest total, and this is the highest total they've ever recorded in the Netherlands, was yesterday and that was just over 16,000, one six, not 82,000, as was reported on the news in Melbourne the other night. And that makes me a bit grumpy because that is some really, really shocking disinformation that was an honest mistake, but it's not as bad as as being reported and Germany's numbers are bad and the worst in one of the worst in Europe but they're nowhere near six figures of a hundred thousand today. Did you say the reporter's name was Mary Louise? McClaws, yeah, she's yeah. an epidemiologist. Yes, well, Mary, was, Mary a, I wonder if Mary Louise realises that there, there, there are two off-duty journos who have nothing much better to do <laughs> to, watch, to watch these <laughs> to watch these reports and go, aha, error. Hey, as um, I did, I did say once that James Heard was sacked. We all make mistakes, and as I remember bemoaning uh, some other terrible error to Andrew Demetrio one day, and he said, "Don't worry, I gave Meatloaf half a million dollars." You know, we all make mistakes. So, Mary Louise, we all make mistakes. But anyway, that was that is my grumpy for the week, Corrie. It might seem a bit trivial, but there we are. Okay, so on to six quick questions, and um, shall I kick it off? Yeah, why don't you? Corrie, do Victoria's proposed new pandemic laws spell election trouble for Daniel Andrews? I'll be interested to hear the answer to this. Oh, yes, they do, Caro. He's, if, he was, if we suggest that the Premier was not so popular a few months ago, I think he's even less popular now. So this is really interesting, Caro. It's, it's one of those issues that I think activates not only swinging voters, but all of those small-l liberals in Melbourne's leafy suburbs. Do you remember in the 1990s when... Jeff Kennett um, was going to or did restrict the powers of the ombudsman, and I remember yep. I remember covering it for whoever I was working for at the time, um, maybe the age I can't remember. Um, going to a community hall in Canterbury from memory, might have been Camberwell, and there were just dozens and dozens and dozens of people. Um, who were kind of Matt 58, 59 bods, and they were all so outraged, and their outrage was very sincere. And um, and what do you know? You know, the government changed not long afterwards. So the 
the protest is this is this is formed in response to the government's pandemic bill, which has been doing a little bit of back and forth. Now they're being a bit more conciliatory about it. Um, they're and they announced on Monday uh, the government is amending the bill. Um, but even so, there's been such a lot of strong criticism from lawyers, human rights activists, obviously the opposition. Uh, Matthew Guy's kicking a few goals um, in in constant and um, considered criticism. Um, the Libs sort of let themselves down, I think, a couple of them um, by marching with the protesters who'd gathered on Parliament House steps the other day and they were chanting violent slogans and then they had, you know, the gallows. You probably, you and Brendan probably saw that over there and um, they called for um, people to dance on the end of a rope, which was a bit unnecessary and I think Matthew Guy was quite um, agitated that his MPs, his backbenchers, a couple of them were there. But I think the government's handling of this has been so heavy-handed. Uh, it's really, it's really put people off who might have had just still a little bit of um, a little bit of support for for the government and its lockdown policies. And of course, you know, you can see why this is happening because what they, the government wants to to get some sort of legislation in place so that when this when COVID takes off again or when there are future um, health issues or pandemics, that they have some legislation in place. But gosh, it is fraught and I think it is going to be an election issue, all all kind of bundled in with Daniel Andrews' heavy-handedness of, about this this whole, you know, the last It's interesting those Roy Morgan figures in that were, re- I mean, obviously not as good as last year for the government, but certainly pretty impressive. And young people seem to still be over 70% supporting of Daniel Andrews, thinking he's doing a good job. It's pretty amazing, isn't yeah. it? It, and, and look, it is a long time. I think the next the, the next state election is at the, toward the end of next year. Um, yeah, would, next November. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so as we know, long time between drinks. I mean, federally, we've seen the the um, the Morrison government try and bounce back this week from all of the. Uh, <laughs> what happened in Glasgow, and they're and they're trying pretty hard to to change the mood and change the and and, and people do forget, but I think I think this issue of how we how we have fared and and the legislation going forward into the future that could be a, a, one of the key issues. Anyway, it'll be interesting to see. Caro, on to your a question for you. What's the most disappointing element of Alan Jones's removal from Sky TV? Well, look, I'll try and keep it brief because we're probably um, talking on far too much, but. After everything Alan Jones has done, after his treatment of Julia Gillard, after his, and I'm only going on recent, the recent few years, after his treatment of Adam Goods, just the most appalling bullying behaviour and shocking things he said about Julia Gillard and about her father, the fact that in the end no one really had the guts to do anything about him except because of ratings, I think just... I realise I'm being incredibly naive here. I understand the way the media works, but in the end, it was numbers that did him in. And, he, you know, he's, he's denying it, of course. He's saying that his numbers aren't that bad and he's rather sort of clinging on to some semblance of relevance. But after some of the dreadful things he did that kept him in jobs for far too long, I'm just sorry that it took this long for I him think, to yeah. finally leave his last sort of major media platform. Corey. Oh, this is you know, this is a um, concerning one. Do you think the palace is telling the truth about the Queen's health? No, 
No, and oh, you know, I, ne- I never thought that I would be in total agreement with Piers Morgan, the somewhat controversial British former TV host and a long-time royal watcher, but he actually uh, tweeted, uh, he or it, I think he was retweeting an article that he'd written, I hadn't seen it, where he said that uh, Her Majesty missing after spraining her back um, and then not being able to go to the... Um, the 11th of the 11th um, Remembrance Day, all of the wonderful things, you know, that happen in London at that time and everywhere else for remembrance. And the Queen has always been a significant figure in this because, of course, she lived through World War Two, and she's had so many experiences with, with so many of the veterans over the years. For her not to be there, Piers wrote, there's something we're not being told about the Queen's health. It's clearly a more serious situation than the palace is saying. So what's interesting, Caro, is I then jumped on all the different websites, the Daily Mail, the Times, the Guardian UK, and they're all just kind of parroting the same line from Buckingham Palace. The Queen, having sprained her back, has decided this morning with great regret she will not be able to attend the Remembrance Sunday service. So they're just, so mm. nobody's really asking the big questions. What's happening? What, Dear Queen, what is going on? Where are you? Are you okay? Are you okay? Um, while we're on yeah, the royals, oh. my question to you, should Harry and Meghan stop referencing their royal connections? Well, look, I think they should, Corrie. I think it's been, um, you know, I don't think, uh, when it's relevant, particularly for Harry as part of his charity work or what he's trying to promote, et cetera, but when Meghan talks about um, what's her campaign at the moment, paid parental leave, great campaign, really good campaign, to Reference her husband's family just seems to me a little bit glib. And there's something a bit sad about the clinging on to that. Everyone knows who they are. I've, I'm finding that a bit tiresome. Sorry, but I am. Oh, it could be it could that, be the Duke and Duchess of Windsor all over again, do you think? Oh, well, yeah. Gee, I hope not. I hope not. Corrie, which new movie are you in fits of excitement to see next month? Fits of excitement, although it's not a fun one. It's quite an earnest and I think menacing one, The Power of the Dog. This is the new, have you heard about this, the new Jane Campion movie? It's opened up at our um, cinema down the road. I'm going to see it next week. Oh, rats on you. I saw saw the previews. It looks, that looks bleak. Oh, it, it sure brilliant. does. It sure does. Well, it, you can actually view it um, on Netflix from the, just in case your cinema closes down because of COVID, Caro, uh, from the 1st of December, it's on Netflix. But it stars uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, who, of course, you and I love from uh, Sherlock, and he's actually playing a Montana ranch man, which is, and I've yeah. seen I've seen the shorts, his accent is impeccable. And he plays uh, one of the Burbank brothers, Phil, and the other brother, George, played by Jesse Plemons. They run a cattle ranch. Um, they uh, things they, they have a very close relationships, and things start to become uneasy when George marries a widowed uh, woman called Rose, played terrifically. It looks like on the shorts by Kirsten Dunst, who I think I is love such, her. Oh, I love her too. She's such a good actor, and she has a teenage son, Peter, who's played by the Aussie. Cody Smith uh, McPhee, who is is a gentle, um, artistic chap. Um, you might sort of say slightly effeminate boy, but um, beautifully acted. And um, 
the relationship is fraught because they come to live in the family home. Phil the Benedict Cumberbatch character has secrets of his own and feels increasingly hostile toward Rose and the son and starts picking on the boy Peter because of his uh, artistic ways. And I won't say anything more about uh, what happens or what I think might happen, but the power of the dog brings Jane Campion back into our world, thank God. And it actually, uh, she won the Silver Lion Award for Best Direction at the Venice Film Festival a couple of months ago. Yeah, now look, it's been showing here for a few weeks and um, had really good reviews. I'll tell you what's got a bit lacklustre reviews, and that's um, the new James Bond film, which I've been dying to see, but needs an edit, according to both my father and Anna from the op shop. And, um, yeah, just could have been a little bit shorter and a bit too woke for their liking. Oh, how anyway, interesting we'll, is that? We'll have, we'll have to get Anna on soon to give, us her, um, to give us her take. Well, I thought we should have a Christmas episode and get, and get Anna along too. And now that we're back in the studio, hooray, hooray. Or well, you're not, but we are. So, Caro, final question is what's this week's Dutch fact? Corrie, do you know about Black Pete? Have you heard of Black Pete? Yes, I have. Well, no, I've heard of Pete. Yeah, well, what's oh, sorry? What's black? Is this like black chicken legs? Well, no, 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 no. Black Pete or Thwart, bad accent, Piet, is sort of Saint Nicholas's sidekick here. Oh no, sorry. So, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of Peat that you put in the ground. No, Pete I thought this was going to be a gardening. Pete, I thought it was going to be a gardening tip. No, I do not know. Father Christmas doesn't have a sidekick. What are you talking about? Well, he does here, and his name is Black Pete, and Black Pete has become a divisive and controversial character over the past decade in the Netherlands, all of the lowlands, really. Um, he also appears in Belgium. So don't laugh, Corrie. So <laughs> he was sorry. first – I suppose he was first um, – he was first became known in literary, in terms of documentary terms, in the mid-1850s. That was when he was first written about. He's sort of um, a Moorish character. So the, Christmas is obviously celebrated here on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, but they have Sinterklaas happens on December 5, on the eve of December, on the night of December, it's all called Sinterklaas Eve, St Nicholas's Eve, um, on December the 5th. And St Nicholas arrives with his sidekick, Black Pete. And Black Pete is a mythical character, but I'm disappointed to say that he's usually played by white characters with black face <gasps> and often in Renaissance attire and black wigs and big lips. And, yeah, it's so anyway, it's really, really upset a lot of people. Controversial. Yep, and, and a lot of um, it's. I mean, this is a you know goes back you know decades. Um, it, he's been a, a major traditional figure in Dutch lives, but a lot of black people find it you know really offensive. Obviously, a lot of people find it really offensive. There's been a sort of backlash against the phasing out of Black Pete. There's even been an attempt to call him Sooty Pete and they're saying he's just got a sooty face because he's come down the chimney. I mean, seriously, this has become a big problem. And I find it all a bit scary myself. I mean, it's a rather scary sort of concept, but the kids love. So Black Pete and St Nicholas come, Sinterklaas come, and they put sweets in their shoes. Another tradition of um, Sinterklaas on December 5 on St Nicholas Eve is that for, um the adults in the family wrote poems about each other in a, in the form of a bit of a roast, <laughs> there a was bit of a, like a celebrity there, roast. There was a young girl called Caro. <laughs> it's it's very who very loved nice, a bit anyway. of, who loved a bit of bone marrow. 
So in, in the minds of most people, Black Pete should be on the way out, particularly with the black face. But there is a sort of a, a hit back from the people who hate political correctness. And dare I say, to the point of, you know, there's it's even, you know, started to have sort of fascist overtones of people demonstrating that we have to keep Black Pete. So this is a big issue that's going to come up again this year. And I've just, it's a fascinating, when you start reading about it, Google Black Pete, you will be amazed. So you're telling, amazed. so you're telling a kid of five that Father Christmas and Black Pete are going to come down the chimney? Well, they, they actually travelled and originally, traditionally travelled over from Spain. That's why Black Pete was sort of a Moorish character, as in, you know, M-O-O-R-I-S-H. And, um, yeah, that, but, yes, that was remember, now he's sooty, well, now I he's can, sooty Pete in some homes. Well, I and can, some people well, are just eliminating him altogether. Altogether. Well, how interesting. Well, you know, I, can you recall that year, I guess your godson, my son Will, was about five or six or something, and he absolutely spat it about Father Christmas coming down the chimney. He was old enough to realise that this chap comes into your home. You know, it wasn't just a fun thing, but suddenly what actually is Christmas? Oh, well, he comes down the chimney with a sack of gifts. And how does he get in the house? Do you know he's here? When do you know he's here? Do you hear him? What if he takes you away? Uh, Will was freaked. It was, and, I, and when you think about it, pretty freaky, whether it's Sooty Pete, Black Pete, Father Christmas... The whole gang is coming well, to your home. I, I think Black Black Pete presents a whole lot of other problems, which are far more serious than that, because it's just become completely. Look, it's it's just appalling, really, it's the way so some poli- people. It's so politically. It's so politically incorrect. But how? Well, Brendan was very concerned about how I was going to phrase this. He said, "Just be careful the way how you explain this." I said, "But this is it, it's fascinating." It's and and Rose was telling me about it when I first arrived. How Black Pete has become, you know, completely. Complete no-no. Anyway, that's my Dutch fact for the week, Corrie. Well, can you keep us up to date and maybe take some film footage of the protesters or something? We'd be very interested to follow that story about Black Pete. Caro, it's been lovely to chat again. I love catching up with you like this, although I'd much rather see you in person here in the studio with Jane and I. And bad luck, tough, as Marsh Sheila would say, tough titties, because look what Jane has brought me in. Can you see the size oh, of these lemons? Lemons. From Every time tree? I buy lemons here, I tell myself I don't have any, any friends. friends. <laughs> That's right. Well, <laughs> I do. I do, and her name is Jane Neal, and she has bought in six huge lemons for my gin and tonic, and she is my friend. Oh, that rind, Corrie, that rind would be very good for lemon cordial. Uh, well, <laughs> bad luck, it's all mine. And she's also bought in a beautiful posy of flowers, so we're thinking of you here. But um, also worth um, thanking Jane for being the world's greatest producer um, how we get this podcast together, I don't know. I have to apologise uh, belatedly for our podcast recording last week. It had nothing to do with Jane's brilliance. It had everything to do with my terrible line. So but thankfully the powers that be have allowed me back in the studio today and that's where I'll be for the next couple of episodes as we move toward our 200th, Caro. Wow. I'm sorry we won't be doing it together. We'll be not only doing it across the world from each other, but 10 hours apart. So we'll have to work out how to get in sync somehow. And have One a, of us will have a drink have a and drink. the other one will have a cup of tea. Yeah, that's right. Well, anyway, it's <laughs> always the same. Isn't well, it? well, it isn't, but it's all, it's, all, um, it's all worth celebrating and we'll have a bit more on that next week. So, guys, if you want to connect with us, there's Instagram, don't shoot pod is the Instagram account. There's Facebook. 
Uh, we tweet, although not very often, but you can always just follow us there. And of course, the best way to leave us a note or give us some feedback is via the email feedback at dontshootpod.com.au. Thanks for your company. Thank you, Caro. And what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. This podcast is proudly supported by Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world.